Is it cold outside? Should I run and hide? How do I take my company worldwide? Do you love the law? Did you watch Hee Haw? What's the weirdest thing that you ever saw? What's it like in court? Favorite sport? Can you help with my book report? Is my hair too long? Am I right or wrong? And do you mind if I sing along to anything? Ask Alan anything. All right. Hello, everybody, and welcome to... Uh... Next installment of Ask Allen. This time, uh, we're, uh, Ask Allen and Bruce McMullen. Bruce is my guest today, and uh, he and I both served in the uh, Strickland administration. And uh, he's a great lawyer here in town in Memphis, and uh, a, a good friend of mine. And he's been nice enough to come in and and talk with us. And hopefully, we'll have uh, uh, a nice session uh, to get to know Bruce and uh, hear a little bit of inside baseball on what it's like to be the city attorney for Memphis, Tennessee. Bruce, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me, Alan. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. And I look forward to talking to your audience. Yeah, yeah, it, uh, it's going to be good. Um, now, Bruce, uh, you, uh, you've been a, a lawyer here in, from, uh, in Memphis for uh, your professional career, but you didn't start out in Memphis, did you? No, I didn't, Alan. Actually, I'm from middle Georgia down in a little small town near Macon, Georgia called Sparta, Georgia. And I uh, went to the University of Georgia and I started my professional career in Macon working for a Warren Buffett company that has a little gecko that advertised for it every day. Um, <laughs> and um, that's where I first started my career and I got exposed to claims handling and how insurance companies work. And um, um, evaluating liability. And uh, interestingly, uh, I got a chance to meet Warren Buffett before he was a rock star. Everybody thought at the time I met him, he was related to Jimmy Buffett some kind of way. But uh, that's, that's, that's where I started. And um, after um, working in corporate America for about five years, uh, I went to law school at the University of Tennessee, which was really weird. Uh, because uh, going to the University of Georgia undergrad, you were conditioned to hate the University of Tennessee. But then I found myself there uh, in law school, and um, it was a great place. I enjoyed it. What was uh, what was the University of uh, Georgia like as an undergraduate? Oh, it was great. Uh, it was um, the difference between, and I kind of um, compared to the University of Tennessee. The University of Georgia is not landlocked. So it's a big sprawling campus with a full-time bus system and uh, it, uh, the environment was great. It was a college town. You saw a lot of great bands during my time, REM, bands like that kind of evolved from there. Um, and uh, it was a great time to be a young college student in Athens, Georgia when I went. Um, and it was a great town. Uh, in Tennessee, um, going to law school there, it's, it's a little different because I was more mature, did less of a social life. Uh, <laughs> but uh, it was a, um, I happened to be there during the Peyton Manning years. So how lucky can you get? Well, speaking of Peyton Manning and University of Georgia, um, did you by any chance see the, um, the golf challenge that he played with Tiger Woods? I absolutely did, Alan. And it, it, interestingly, I never watched golf on television, okay, it, it, unless maybe Tiger was about to win the Masters uh, back in the day. But 
Uh, but I watched this, and it was hilarious. I mean, it, it was a lot of fun. I mean, uh, Tom Brady was uh, frustrated as he could be, but he made the shot of the century that <laughs> kind of gave him his mojo back. It, it, the whole thing was a lot of fun, a lot of fun. Did you hear what uh, Manning said about coordinating uh, his uh, outfit with Tiger Woods? No, no, no. Well, you know, Tiger famously wears the red shirt and the black pants on uh, Sundays, and so that's what he was going to wear. And evidently, either he or his people asked Peyton if they, if he would dress uh, like Tiger. And Peyton said no. Uh, he didn't want to give the University of Georgia any recruiting shots to show him <laughs> in a red and a black outfit. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. That, that's interesting. Uh, rivalries don't die easily. You, you realize that. that no, they, no, they don't. Not especially in the SEC. But uh, I cheer for Peyton uh, at least eight or nine games a year. One game I could not cheer for. Him. I understand. I understand. Uh, and in particular, uh, one game in Memphis, uh, cheering for Peyton Manning didn't help at all. Absolutely. You're talking about that game that Memphis beat uh, the University of Tennessee. It is really funny. I was there with some alum, uh, some faculty from the University of Tennessee, and it was real cold. And I told my wife, I said, well, as soon as Tennessee takes the lead, we can leave because then Memphis is going to fold. And uh, we left early and went to a TGI Friday. And then the fans start coming in later. So uh, suffice it to say, I didn't actually see the victory. I, I watched 90 per, uh, three quarters of the game and left, and they came in. And uh, I thought a guy was joking when he said Memphis won. I mean, it was, the, it was incredible. Uh, that was an incredible victory for the city. Well, as a Memphis fan, uh, my, uh, I, what becoming a tradition on the show, I always quote my father, Jim Crone, and – he always said when I was growing up, we will beat Tennessee when nobody expects it, including us. And that's exactly what happened. Nobody expected us to win. Uh, no Memphis fans went to the game expecting uh, a victory. We're just hoping to kind of hold your own against Peyton Manning. And uh, to have that outcome was, uh, it was, it was great for that program and great for the city. Oh, and, and Memphis program has built so much until they got a, uh, a rich program problems. Uh, nobody will play them outside of the conference. Nobody want to play them. They're too competitive. None of the other big power five schools is, is no benefit of playing Memphis. You could only lose it. That, that would be the worst thing. So that's, that's a right. big program problems. That's good for Memphis. Well, uh, you mentioned working uh, for the, the Warren Buffett companies. What, what was it like back in those days uh, to work for a guy like that? What's interesting, at the time, Geico was a small telephone insurance company. So you called in and, and got your insurance policy, and uh, the, the Cadillac of the industry were the larger companies that had bricks and mortar. You went and knew your insurance agency. And so the thought was very few people buy something as personal as insurance over the phone. Well, you know what happened over time, the internet became more and more prevalent and you had a generation that'll do anything online without ever meeting anybody. And that was kind of the explosion right before I left the company of Geico becoming a real major factor because they were already set up uh, to do telephone sales. So they turned it into internet sales and they had no real offices, not a lot of brick 
and mortar around the country. So that was an expense that was saved. And they took advantage of that. And that just really grew the company exponentially. And um, when it kind of, when I thought it got to its peak, I kind of uh, cashed out and went to law school. So that's that's what, what I did. And then after finishing UT, uh, my first job uh, was at uh, Lewis Thomason here in Memphis, Tennessee. And uh, of course that firm does a lot of insurance uh, uh, defense work, and I would imagine that your experience at Geico really helped prepare you for that. Uh, it did. It did. I knew the lingo. I knew the industry. And quite frankly, I still had friends who were claims managers. So it gave me a good opportunity to reach out to some people and uh, kind of develop some um, business. And um, also, uh, Lewis Thomason did a fair amount of medical malpractice, and I did a, did a lot of that. So that's kind of how I started and got my expertise kind of going was in insurance defense and medical malpractice. Now, um, I think one one thing that a lot of people don't know about you is that in high school you were an accomplished uh, basketball player. I was an accomplished high school basketball player. No further than that. It just put a period right there. I had no future at the next level, but uh, I had a had a lot of lot of fun. Uh, my son and I have been watching the last dance. I was on a um, high school team with Horace and Harvey Grant, and uh, we had a pretty impressive high school team. And uh, um, I, I always thought I was better than both, but now I guess time has proven that, that that wasn't true. But tell me that at 17 and 18, and I would argue you down. But uh, I had a lot of fun with that. We have a lot of fun, fond memories, and it was good for me and my son to kind of watch the last dance, even though. Uh, Everything about hearts wasn't positive on there. It was good to see a high school teammate and a friend uh, and kind of relive in some way his pro career. Well, I heard he cannot, he can't take a deposition to save his life. That, there, there we go. I say, you know, I did not want to spend my life, you know, chasing the million dollars in sports. And so I kind of focused on academics and, uh, I'm 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 happy with where I am, and I bet you he's happy with where he is. I, I would imagine so. I would imagine so. Now, your son and my son uh, played uh, high school basketball together. Uh, they overlapped, I guess, a year uh, out at Christian Brothers. How's uh, How's Reese and and uh, the brothers going to do this year? I think they they are poised to do well if the uh, COVID virus. Uh, subsides. Um, um, one thing you know um, from your son Charlie playing there, uh, the true six man of, of CDHS team is that crowd, <laughs> that crowd packed in the building like sardines. And I'm, I'm very fearful that uh, they may play but may not have the audiences that they're used to. But uh, they, they, uh, the team is poised to do well and they had their first uh, day of uh, summer summer practice today, which entailed running on a football field, um, clearly uh, distancing from each other, and no basketball involved. So that's what practice was like this morning at uh, seven o'clock. Yeah, I, re I remember when Charlie played uh, those summer workouts, and uh, uh, it, it all would it always paid off late in the season because. Uh, those guys were really well conditioned as a result of all that running they did during the summer. Yeah. And, and one thing uh, the coaches do well over there, they work out contrary to what a, a, a lot of um, 
endurance and strength trainers recommend. They work out during the season. And so the idea is that they won't um, tire it out and they continue to build their body during the season. So uh, hopefully there will be a season and um, my son is very excited. It'll be his last year. So we're, we're excited about that. Well, you make a great point about the crowd and, you know, they've, they've been talking about uh, expanding that facility, but uh, one of the, as you say, one of the great things about it, playing particularly when they play a big rivalry game like Briarcrest or MUS or even to some extent in, in recent years, uh, St. Benedict, you can't get in the place. And the other side would always complain because you, you couldn't get in, uh, in, the, in the gym and it would be packed with uh, Christian Brothers students and a very hostile place to play. It, it is. And, and I think actually um, early on, my son was looking forward to the, a new gym being built. But I think as he played in there, he fell in love with what he calls the coffin. And <laughs> he and I were in um, uh, um, North Carolina and we went by Cameron Indoor Stadium. And it's, I couldn't believe how small, I knew it was small, but I'd never been in there. I couldn't believe how small it was. It must be incredible to get a ticket to those small venues, but it, it creates such an atmosphere that is uh, just, just really great. I have a question for you, uh, Alan. How happy are you to be like me, retired from the city and not dealing with some of the problems that are going on right now? I've, I've always said that there's no position in government or politics that isn't improved by adding the word former to it. <laughs> and uh, it, to answer your question directly, it breaks my heart to see uh, some of the things that are going on. Um, particularly, I've been proud in Memphis. I think we've, we've generally had good uh, protests. And, uh, uh, you know, I just, I'm hopeful that outside influences and bad influences won't undermine the progress that folks are making who are, who are actually protesting and trying to, to better the situation. And uh, on one level, I'm glad I don't, that, that responsibility isn't falling on my shoulders. Uh, on the other hand, uh, you know, you kind of miss it a little bit because you want to, I, I want to be there making a difference. Um, but, you know, I'm just so proud of Mike Rollins and, and Mayor Strickland and Mayor Harris and uh, Sheriff, uh, Bonner and everyone who's who's approached this from a from a law enforcement standpoint, and for those people who think we haven't made progress, uh, I was reflecting on this today. The number of public officials who are approaching this from a a, a place of positivity versus in the '60s, where every public official was approaching it from negativity. And, you know, how can they quash it? How can they, you know, marginalize the protest um, is really, really remarkable that, you know, that, that sheriff, I think, in Michigan who uh, got off the line and walked with people, uh, Mike Rollins, who's famously known to going on the, the bridge uh, several years ago and, and diffusing that situation and uh, the mayor of, of Chicago and Atlanta and just on and on and on, all of these, these leaders who've come out and, and supported the cause, but also encouraged uh, public safety. And, you know, I think that's a, that's a positive that we can all take away from this, is that it, uh, 
in the establishment, there are many more friendly voices and supportive voices than there were 50 years ago. And that certainly is progress that we've all made. I, oh, I agree with you. And, and just having been in the pressure cooker like you, uh, I got a real appreciation for what I know is going on 24-7 with that leadership team. And I don't want to leave out uh, my successor, uh, Jennifer Saint, who is now the chief legal officer. And uh, last time I spoke with her, she she hadn't had much sleep in a while. So they are, they're really working. It makes me reflect on a conversation I had with Director Rollins. Um, you know, you and I were there with the bridge incident and we went through various things at that time. Um, we kind of joke, there's never a headline in the paper, no disaster occurred, everything was averted. And we would, as you know, we spent a lot of time um, uh, anticipating things, working hard. And then when we are successful and nothing happens, nobody hears about it. But they have no idea how much, how hard uh, uh, the, the leadership worked uh, to avoid that. But um, I'm, I'm like you. I'm I'm proud of uh, how Memphis has done so far. Uh, no, no administration is perfect. You're going to have some snafus because snafus because administration is built of people and they're not perfect. But um, I'm I'm really proud of our time there, Alan, and I'm really proud of what what the mayor has, and his his crew has done thus far handling these issues. I, I look around at other cities. And I see some of the mistakes they 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 make in handling it, and like you say, the lack of sensitivity, and uh, us versus them, instead of a we mentality, uh, just have really put them in a pickle in a lot of lot of instances. But uh, um, I miss it, but um, I'm not envious of the people who are facing it, who are there now facing it. No, it's a uh, it's, uh, you know it's a it's a challenging thing. And uh, people, um, and I say this all the time, uh, when I, when I, as you know, and, and some of our listeners know, I was briefly on the city council and people would always ask me, what was, what's your biggest surprise? What were you most surprised about? And, and I would always say, I don't know that I was surprised by this, but I'm always impressed by the, uh, uh, the commitment that public officials in Memphis have and you know, there are lots of, there's lots of cynicism out there about politicians and public officials being uh, self-serving and, and whatnot. And I can only speak for Memphis uh, and Shelby County governments. Um, there are lots of good people out there who come to work every day, uh, from the mayor on down to the, to the uh, lowest paid uh, employee. And all they want to do is do a good job for the people of this city and county. And um, it shows uh, in, in times like this uh, that that our folks do care. And I was proud to be a part of, not just be a part of the Strickland administration, but I was proud to, to say that I work for Memphis city government. No, I, I, I get the same feeling. I had, I had had very little involvement in working for uh, government um, other than doing legal stuff. Um, but actually being in the uh, strategy room before um, I took the appointment from Mayor Strickland. And it was eye-opening and it was very, very rewarding. I had no idea how rewarding it would be. Uh, and it's something um, uh, I, 
I told Mayor Strickland, uh, this may have been the best professional four years of my life as far as professional, but it was, it was a great experience, but Hey, I don't miss it. I'm, I'm, I'm happy to be former right now. <laughs> I can, I can uh, uh, smile and opine on things that happen, but don't have to be accountable. Well, um, you, you talk about professional accomplishments and certainly one of, you had a lot of professional accomplishments when you were city attorney or chief legal officer as Mayor Strickland has, has renamed that position. Um, but one of them had to be the, the legal fight uh, related to uh, the Confederate statues in, in Memphis. Yeah, that was, that was a really, really big one that um, um, we fought hard on that and we fought at every level from the Chancery Court to the Appellate Court to the Supreme Court. And it was one of those things that by and large, no city is 100% anything, but by and large, 90% of Memphis uh, was behind us. Um, we, we had a strategy, uh, we executed that strategy, um, and uh, we, uh, we were very successful. That, that will go down in, in my life as one of, one of my uh, things that I'm most proud of being involved in. Um, probably other than the birth of my kids. And I don't know how much involvement I had with that, but, but uh, it's interesting. You should bring that up. I got a call uh, from, um, from Birmingham. They had an interesting situation where their statutes were taken down uh, by protesters. And uh, they similarly to us had, had uh, a state law that governs how they would, have the statutes removed and then and their law was built in with a lot of heavy fines. And as you know, they covered them up at one point and they were fines um, like something like 25,000 a day or something like that. So their legal issue now is they've been taken down, not by the government, but by protesters. And now the legal issue, what obligation do they have? put them back up or how they have to deal with it. And anytime you're dealing with something like that, either the, the taking down the statutes, the pandemic or protest is, it's not a whole lot of roadmaps to go by. You, uh, you just have to, you're presented with the issue and, and have to uh, think those things through. So it, it, it is, that too is something that has been challenging, but I was very, very uh, proud to be a part of that. I was proud uh, to have a uh, boss uh, at that time, Mayor Strickland, who really, I mean, uh, you know, he he put faith in us and uh, never second guess, never never question. And sometimes that make it even more stressful for you when your boss don't second guess you because you say, well, I can't I can't let him down. But uh, but that was something that uh, you felt like benefited the whole city and would benefit future generations. And um, it was great. I, I appreciate you bringing it up. That was a great accomplishment and I was happy to be a part of it. I was driving in uh, to the office uh, uh, this, uh, this morning, like you, my, my law office is downtown and I'm driving down Union Avenue and I passed to Health Science Park where that statue of General Forrest used to, used to stand. And, um, uh, it made me wonder, and, and I'd be interested in your perspective on this, how important is it uh, as we sit here right now with all that's going on that that statue and the statue of Jefferson Davis uh, are gone and not just gone, but gone um, 
at the behest uh, of the of city government? Uh, it, it is it is very important. I, I, I got to tell you a story, uh, Alan. When I first moved to Memphis, you know, I drove past that statue and never paid it any attention. Uh, I have a friend who um, parents immigrated to this country and they didn't know much about the history of the country, and they got photographs. They took photographs in front of a lot of statues because they thought. Obviously, there's some famous American. I would just right. take a picture. I really don't know the history of it. And um, I was somewhat, I, I just never paid it any attention until my kids were born. And, and uh, we would drive by there and saw um, the, um, um, I think, uh, some some groups there that were there celebrating. And I kind of uh, taught them what was going going on. And um, then it became something that, that I really thought about every time I drove by it. But having it gone, to answer your question, Alan, A, I think is very good. I think the protests would be a little more incendiary if they were still there, quite frankly. And I think Birmingham proved that to be true. That's one of the flashpoints in Birmingham right now, even with this protest. So uh, there are a lot of benefits of having it gone, some immediate benefits. That's not something uh, that's left there to continue to divide this city. Uh, and um, historically, I can't wait till the pedestals are removed so they can do something pretty in that area. Uh, but historically, uh, that's something that uh, is uh, very, very meaningful. And uh, I think about it, it's not a time I don't drive out there and just stare at it. Absolutely, Alan. It, it 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 means it means a lot to me, and I think overall the um, the dividends that this community will reap by not having to deal with that, I think, will be enormous over time. Well, and one one aspect of it uh, that that I think is particularly important is. Memphis will be probably the first, if not only, city to take those uh, a statue like that down, but then the statue be re-erected someplace else that's more appropriate. And you know, there are two sides. I, I had a judge once tell me that you know every pancake, no matter how thin it is, it's got two sides. And so there's always two sides to this. Um, but I think the fact that the plan is down the road to, to perhaps re-erect that statue in a more appropriate place uh, that can that can be the historical context uh, is also a testament to the way the, the the way it was taken down not not in an appeasement um, t uh, frame but in, in a more uh, productive frame particularly as it related to the uh, anniversary of, of Dr. King's assassination to not having those statues standing during that. Again, that goes back to what you were saying. Uh, nothing bad happened, so nobody really thinks about it, but uh, those could have really marred that celebration, uh, or not really a celebration, but uh, the, the remembrance of Dr. King's legacy um, to get distracted by the, the statue, I think would have, been, uh, uh, would have been terrible for Memphis. And uh, I think it, one of the reasons why uh, we're not looking at some of the problems that we've had in, in other cities right now. You're, you're, you're exactly right. 
Uh, I will give a shout out to lawyers, Alan. Uh, there are a lot of lawyer jokes out there, but um, you know, it's lawyers that have really uh, set the foundation for a lot of change in America. You can go back to Brown v. Board of Education or a, a lot of the uh, similar cases. And you're right, uh, we did it right. We did it in accordance with the law. We argued our case all the way to the Supreme Court. And I think, and I know there are two sides, and I know there's another side that did not want those statutes removed. But when I talked to them, the way it was done uh, made it more palatable. And then the other part is, as, as you say, you know, I was never in, in, in favor of destruction of any part of history. Uh, but I think it should be put in the proper context or put somewhere where it can be preserve uh, and that people who want are interested in that uh, should be allowed to see it. And once we won at the Supreme Court, uh, we got a great amount of cooperation from the other side to now let's get this thing um, in a place where it can be preserved and can be enjoyed. So um, I, I know everybody will shake hands and say, oh, we're all happy. But if you're going to resolve an issue that at some point, one side is going to win, one side is going to lose. I think both sides appreciate the fact that it was fought through the courts, fairly open and legally it was done. And that's that's uh, one thing I'm, I'm also proud that we did it that way. Well, and one thing I learned that uh, was a real education to me is a lifelong Memphian. Um, my family's been in Memphis since the 1850s. And um, as you say, you know, to, to pass that statue as I was growing up, uh, I really didn't think anything about it because re it really didn't mean anything to me. Uh, and I know that, that, that there are white uh, Memphians and, and Tennesseans that it, it means something to them from an historical standpoint. But as, as I got into the debate in public about it and talked to African-American uh, friends of mine and just African-American constituents and people I'd never met before in my life, um, but to hear their side of the story and to hear what it, it meant to them, um, no matter what the intent of the people were who erected it, uh, it, it didn't just offend people. It, 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 it intimidated and cowed them and uh, sent them a signal that they didn't belong in Memphis or weren't wanted in Memphis. And once I understood the other side of it, um, the just relocating it, if that made one more person feel like a part of Memphis, that Memphis cared about them. The mayor, the mayor told a story about a, an older man uh, who watched it with, I think somebody on, on our staff and who was a relative. And just, he's, she said, this man was, was you know, big, strong, uh, uh, baby boomer, maybe a little older uh, man. She said, I'd never seen him give any emotion, but he sobbed as, as he watched that. And she said, why, why, what's, what's moving you so much about this? And, the answer really surprised her and it surprised me. It wasn't all vindication, you know, we got them retribution. It was, 
somebody finally cared what, what we think. And to give that uh, impression to, a, to a, a, the majority of the city that, that the city government cares what they think, that the, the private sector, the philanthropist who invested in the, the green space, that they cared what they think. Uh, I think it helps us turn a, a very important corner in Memphis, and that's something that's not going to make the headlines. It's not something anybody's going to get reelected by, but hopefully we will. that will pay dividends down the road in terms of, of, of reconciliation and making this one Memphis and not uh, two or three different Memphises. I, I agree, and I, I think we're seeing some of the dividends now while we have the protests out there, as I said before. I think it would be worse and more incendiary if that was there. And that's a dividend that uh, we don't we don't get a banner in the paper. You know what? This would be worse if not for. But 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 I, I think we we're reaping some of the benefits of dividends from that now. I, I really do. Well, Bruce, uh, to change the subject a little bit, what uh, you're not city attorney anymore. What uh, what are you doing? What are you doing now? Well, as you know, um, um, I'm. Um, Chairholder at Baker Donaldson, and um, I am um, back in the world of commercial litigation, and uh, I represent the city on some matters. I re represent several other clients, and uh, and so I'm back at practice. And I can tell you, Alan, um, I'm practicing law um, at a big law firm. I love it. It's a lot of fun, but it does not even compare at all to our four years uh, uh, there with the city. It, it, it does not compare. Do you think you're a different lawyer now than you were five years ago? Oh, absolutely. Uh, I have more of appreciation for the client um, um, aspect of it, and I have more appreciation for your client. A lot of times, whether you represent a corporation or a government, they're dealing with unarticulated issues that you may not know any anything about. And when you get direction from your client, it's very important to engage them because there are a lot of other factors that are non-legal that drive uh, some of their decisions and some of their actions. So I think uh, 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 being the chief legal officer and having to manage litigation has given me a real appreciation for the client as aspect of it. And, uh, you know, we as lawyers, we think when we write a good report, it needs to be 45 pages long because we're showing the client. We really spent a lot of time and studied it. Uh, I learned, and, and you know, in that job, we had to make decisions very quickly and we had to be a quick study and we didn't have time to read a treatise on something <laughs> before we made a decision. And so that has helped me with my cl clients. You know, I have a strong summary statement ahead of any uh, update a status, uh, a paragraph long, everything you really need to know, and then if you want to dig into the details. So just simple things like that have given me a different perspective, and uh, it has helped, it, 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 helped, it helped grow me as a person, uh, and, um, and it helped grow me as a lawyer and a practitioner, um, servicing my client, um, solving problems. And that's, that's what we do as lawyers. We solve problems. And, uh, that's what good lawyers do. Uh, good lawyers solve problems. And I think mediocre lawyers uh, build time. 
And <laughs> there you go. I, I've always said I'd rather solve your problem than win your lawsuit because, uh, particularly for business clients, that's that's really what they want is the problem solved. And, gotcha. and most most clients wouldn't know a great lawyer and if it fell on them, and um, just like I wouldn't know, you know, I wouldn't know great plumbing if it fell on I me. Mean, you just expect it to be done well, um, but it's it's being practical. And I think that, I, I think you're right. I think that's one thing being in a position like that teaches you is how to be practical. Right. Right. Absolutely. Let me ask you this. Uh, we talked about your, your legal career as of, uh, as a city attorney, but outside of that, um, what, what, what was one of your favorite cases or one of your, your uh, accomplishments that, that you really, uh, you really are proud of, uh, from the years that you've been you've been practicing law, well, it, it, it's funny. Um, it, that's a tough question for me because um, you know I represent hospitals and doctors and medical malpractice cases, and some of them get a little a victory in one of those is not always pretty. But um, you know some of the some of the uh, uh, just from a legal challenging. Um, um, I represented a large grocery and, and I won't tell you the name, but they have a card that you swipe every time you go to buy groceries. So they keep up with what you buy. And, um, and, uh, it was a class action over in, um, in another state, um, uh, challenging the card based on an antiquated law that you can't price discriminate, uh, with customers. So a customer having this car has a cheaper price than that car. That was the genesis of the class action. Mm -hmm. And it was a case that it, it went uh, from the district court to the federal court of appeals back down uh, and then was kicked back to the state courts and ended up uh, with a ruling in the Arkansas Supreme Court. So from a civil procedure standpoint, that was a um, uh, 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 a, a very very uh, complex case when you when you talk uh, uh, legally about it. it. It was a very very complex case. But probably one of the more rewarding cases when I was a young lawyer, uh, someone that worked in my firm um, um, uh, was having trouble with a relative on disability and trying to get certain benefits. And that's not the type of law I practice, but I took it as a pro bono. And I was shocked how much money and benefits <laughs> I got for him. And uh, uh, the employee, it was for her mother. Uh, every time she saw me from years later, she thought, you know, uh, I was a godsend to her family. And, uh, and that probably was the the most rewarding case you can do and I was happy I could fumble my way through it because that's not what I, that's not what I did but but and I was I was even shocked that I was successful <laughs> I said wow but uh, that that was probably one of the most rewarding cases uh, I've done for that family uh, later on when her mom passed I went to the funeral. I didn't know any of her siblings, but boy, they ran and hugged me like I was. And she pointed out and she said, and you remember, and they were, and, and that, that was very rewarding. 
Yeah, sometimes it's just, it's just, you know, even the, the result is great, but sometimes it's just wonderful for the client to know that, that the lawyer believes in. And, and that's true whether you're representing a, a woman who's looking to get disability or a big corporation, uh, you're still dealing with, with people. You're still dealing with decision makers who, uh, who have a stake in whatever the legal issue is. And I think really great lawyers are the ones that let their clients know that they believe in them, they care about them, they're not just another file. And that really is when it's rewarding for the lawyer is you can make that connection on a personal level. Absolutely. Well, Bruce, I've really enjoyed uh, our time. Um, I appreciate your time and coming on and sharing uh, your, your, uh, your past and some of your accomplishments and stories uh, uh, with me on this, uh, this format. Um, and so I'm gonna let you go, let you get back to, to practice in law and I'm gonna do the same thing. And uh, I appreciate everybody watching and uh, please join us the next time uh, on um, Ask Alan. And in the meantime, I'm going to go out and get a little justice. Thank you. Thank you, Alan.